Um, we are, this semester, we have been looking at the life of Abraham together in the book of Genesis, and tonight we are going to be looking at Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7, and uh, who's reading scripture for us tonight? It's me. Steven, hey. How's it going? <laughs> thanks for reading for us. Yeah, of course. Um, friends, this is God's word for us tonight. Uh, it is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. <clears throat> the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his own age, his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse child, children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Thank you. So again, um, a warm welcome to you. Uh, it's so good to see your faces and um, wherever you're coming from tonight, um, whether this week is going better than last week or if it's going worse, know that um, I'm, we're really, I'm really glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. And wherever you're coming from in terms of your faith, if you're a committed Christian or you're a curious skeptic or you're somewhere in between, we're, we're just glad to have you here with us. And we hope that RUF continues to be a place where you can figure out what it is that you believe and why you believe it and wrestle through um, the claims that the Bible makes about who Jesus is and who we are. And that's what we're going to do together during this time. Um, I remember, I was thinking this week, uh, about the first time that I read Little Red Riding Hood to our kids. And we got a copy from a neighbor, and the copy that we got went like this. Little Red Riding Hood goes to Grandma and then meets the wolf in the woods, and the wolf tells Little Red Riding Hood to pick flowers for Grandma. The wolf sneaks ahead, and then Little Red arrives at her grandmother's cabin, you know, does the, what big eyes you have, the better to see you with, what big nose you have, the better to smell you with, what big teeth you have, the better to eat you with. And then at that moment, Little Red Riding Hood, in this version of the story, Little Red got scared, and then she, as she gets scared, the grandma ran into the house with the woodsman, because I guess the woodman, grandma hadn't been eaten. And then they chase the wolf out into the woods together. And then they have tea together outside. And it's the celebration, yay, the wolf is gone. This is not the story I remember. And I wouldn't be happy if this happened. I'd be terrified. There's an angry wolf in the woods between my house and grandma's house. And I've got to walk back through there to get home. Like that does not give me peace or joy. Um, and then just a couple of weeks later, we got this other version of Little Red Riding Hood from Chick-fil-A and the like kids meal. And the way that story went was about Wolfie, who was the little bad wolf, and he wouldn't stop drinking pig. And then this group called the Super Readers come into the story with Little Red Riding Hood leading the way as the story's protagonist. And they go to the, the grandmother's house. See, they're kind of mixing stories here to solve pig's problem. And their solution is to tell the wolf to stop being mean and stop trying to trick, trick the pig. Okay, not the story I remember. 
these they take this the story about fear and sorrow and hope and joy and they made it about being nice if you're nice to bad guys they won't hurt you and as I was, I was, I was thinking about this, I did a little research and found there's over a hundred different versions of Little Red Riding Hood. This is the story I remember. Little Red Riding Hood goes to meet her grandmother. On the way there, she meets the wolf in the forest. The wolf goes ahead of Little Red Riding Hood and eats the grandmother, puts on the grandmother's clothes, lays down in the bed. Little Red comes into the house. They do the what big eyes, nose, teeth you have song and dance. Little Red discovers that the wolf is, that the grandmother is not the wolf, then is eaten by the wolf. And then the wolf is so full from this meal of grandmother and, is this the version that y'all had growing up? This is the version I had. Um, so full from eating the grandmother and the, the little girl that falls asleep in the bed. The wolf, the, the woodcutter comes into the house, discovers the wolf and grandmother's clothing, cuts open his belly, takes grandmother and little red out. And then together they fill the wolf's stomach with rocks, sew it back up. And then the wolf wakes up and is terribly thirsty because of the rocks in his stomach. And then he goes down to the creek and drinks water, but because of the weight of the rocks, he drowns himself in the river. That's the story I remember from when I was a kid. And that is a good story that has a real happy ending. There's real sadness because the wolf ate grandma and little red riding hood. But there's also real joy because the wolf is dead. So what's going on here? Why, why do we have all these different stories? Well, our children's stories have been neutered. And we think that real joy is possible without engaging the real sorrows of this life. I think this is extremely important for us. That the, the stories that we tell, the stories that we listen to shape our imaginations. And our imaginations, they shape how we live. There's a British philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who wrote a book in the 80s or the 70s called After Virtue. And in this book, he says, in order to know what we are to do in our lives, in order to know what, what am I to do to answer that question, we have to first answer the question, what story do I find myself a part of? He argues in this book that, that stories are the things that shape how we live, that we need good stories in order to tell us how we are to live in the world. And the story that we're given in Genesis 21 in this story, we receive a microcosm of the true story of the world. So as we look at the story together, I just want us to see three things, the reality of sadness, the scandal of God's promise, and the interruption of joy. So first, I want to remind you of the story of Abraham. We first met Abraham at the end of Genesis 11, and we meet this man who his family is at a dead end. There are no children. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what it's like to say God's name. Abraham and his family had become a stranger to God's promise and joy. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, he receives a call from God. And we see that the call of God meant that his life, while it felt like a dead end, it wasn't. And then in Genesis 12, the Lord makes these, these incredible promises to Abraham. Now he's 70 years old when he receives these promises. He tells them, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless the whole world through you. And then in Genesis 15, he made more promises saying, I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. And then in Genesis 17, we're told Abraham is 99 years old. And he tells him, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations and kings shall come from you. And then these chapters in Genesis that we've read, they, they follow Abraham's sometimes stumbling, sometimes forgetful, sometimes faithful life. 
And after 29 years after God's first promise to him, Abraham's 99, Sarah's 89. She's been visited by an angel who tells her that she will conceive and bear a son. And then at 100 years old, and Sarah at 90, she gives birth to this boy. Sarah was barren for 90 years, 30 of which she was waiting for the promise that God would give her children. 30 years of waiting. Can you imagine what that would be like? I can't imagine what that would be like. Saying to yourself those 30 years, but God said that I'm going to have a kid. He said that he's going to bless the world through me and my family. But before we get to the joy of this passage, we need to acknowledge the sadness. This is something that all of the commentators draw our attention to, that the joy of this passage is deeply connected to the sadness of a lifetime of barrenness. And we're not very good at being sad. We spend so much effort avoiding sadness, avoiding the pain of loss. Philosopher Charles Taylor wrote that Western society's highest goal is to prevent suffering. And now as we're experiencing suffering on a global level in a new way, it's affecting all of us. We are all facing sadness. We all have sorrow. In the words of Ryan Adams, all sorrow can be summed up as I'm fractured from the fall and I want to go home. So why do we need to acknowledge the sadness? I know a lot of us feel like, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to acknowledge it. Why do we need to acknowledge the sadness? The reason is because there is no real joy without lament. There is no real joy without lament. The Pixar film Inside Out deals with this so well. The director, Pete Docter, has said in interviews that in the earliest version of the film, they actually paired the character joy not with sadness, but with fear. And he writes, or he says in an interview, we all want happiness in our life. And in those early versions of the film, um, they thought that dealing properly with fear was the issue. The way that we get happiness, that fear is the issue. That's the thing that's in the way. Fear is the thing that prevents us from real joy. But what he discovered is that sadness, sadness must be central to the film. He said in an interview, there are so many books about how to be happy and what you need, that we need happiness and we want happiness for our kids. And we literally tell our kids, don't be sad. But he discovered that we need sadness. We need to experience sadness in order to experience joy. And the joy of this passage is connected to Sarah's deep sadness. The same is true for our lives. The same is true for your life. You cannot have real joy, true joy, lasting joy, without being connected to the deep sadness in your own life. You cannot have one without the other. Some of you know my story. Um, the fall of my senior year, I was at Tulane University in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina hit and it completely flipped my life upside down. Um, school shut down. I went home to Virginia, drove home to Virginia, moved in with my parents and enrolled at UVA for the semester. And I'd led a very privileged life in my life growing up. The good had always outweighed the bad, at least on the surface. I'd always been told to count my blessings growing up. This had become my mantra. Like whenever stuff got bad, I would count my blessings because there were others who had it worse. And this appears to make sense. And because this was hammered into my head, I didn't think I, didn't think I was allowed to grieve. Because I had it so good, the little bad things that happened weren't really that bad, so I'm not supposed to feel sad about them. I'm supposed to just to buck up, suck it up, count my blessings, and move on. 
And I was reading through some old journals of mine and found something that I wrote from December of 2005 at the end of my semester away from Tulane. I'm going to share this with you. After the levees broke in New Orleans, I realized that I would not be going to school at Tulane this fall, and the fact that my apartment was under three feet of water wasn't even an issue yet. My drive home from South Louisiana to Charlottesville was long. I ran out of gas in Jackson, Mississippi, was stuck at a gasless gas station until someone heard about a gas station that had just gotten power back on. This was five days after Katrina hit. So I sped over there to get in line for gas, and I ran out of gas again in Memphis. And unable to find any, I was able to stay the night with a relative. Found the gas the next morning, and then I made the 13-hour drive from Memphis to Charlottesville that Friday. And the whole way home, I had to distract myself from my emotions. Music, NPR, whatever I could do to take my mind off the loss, my loss in New Orleans. And that, that month, my phone bill was over $250. This is back when phones were cheaper and we didn't have unlimited minutes. It's a lot. 250 is a lot. I refused to let myself emotionally break down while on the road. Because at that point, I didn't believe that I had the luxury of emotions. And unfortunately, I never really grieved about the situation. But then it was early October. My roommates finally went back into New Orleans, got all the salvageable stuff from our apartment, and they sent me a box with what they got from my room. And it were a couple of sweaters, my journals, a Bible, and a few pictures. Lost in the flood was everything else. My grandfather's college chair from when he graduated Tulane in 1933. Clothing, books, my life. Everything that made up who I was was gone. But I didn't let myself grieve. I counted my blessings. So many other people had lost so much more. I had friends that no longer have had homes, friends whose families had lost everything. Now, I honestly didn't lose that much, so I counted my blessings and moved on. Slowly, my life began to unravel. Everything that I felt that I've had a grasp on has slipped through my fingers. This is me writing in December. This really scares me. One day in October, it kind of fell apart. Everything was dissolving. I felt that I couldn't control anything. And I was trying so desperately to hold everything together. I tried counting my blessings, but honestly, I could care less about them anymore. They were dirt compared to how I was feeling. I remember on that Tuesday in October, I went for a run. And when I got back from the jog, I ran suicides until I couldn't anymore. I had a desire to absolutely destroy all the strength that I had. And when I was done, I was wrecked. The next day I met with my campus minister and I got up the courage and told him about how I'd been feeling and about my breakdown the day before. And I expected to hear him say, wow, John, that's really tough. I'll pray for you. But instead he said, John, I want you lower. What? This got me so off guard. You want me lower? Can't you see that my life sucks right now and you want it to be worse? And then he explained, we need to grieve. We need to feel sorrow because that is where Christ meets us. And this is 21-year-old me writing this. I am learning I need to not hide my sorrows, as small as I think they are, because Christ knows that they are real, and he is there with me in them. Only after I grieve and rip open the wounds of my heart will I have something to be thankful for. Christ's redemption. Friends, your sadness is real. And until you grieve, you will not be open to the scandal of God's promise. God's promise to Sarah is ridiculous. It's scandalous. To a 60-year-old woman, he says, you will have a baby, and through that baby, I will make everything that is sad in the world come untrue. And then when she's 90, when she's 90 years old, she gives birth to that child. 
And the birth of this child is the fulfillment of all of the promises. It is the resolution of all of the anguish. Look at verse one. The Lord did as he said. He did as he promised. There are no natural processes here. Those have failed. The joy comes only through the promise of God. And the focus here is not on the announcement of the birth of the promise or the birth by promise, but the focus is on the promise that God kept to this old couple. In Romans 4, 17, Paul writing about the birth of Isaac, he connects the scandal of this promise to the creation of the world out of nothing, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and to justification by grace through faith. Ernst Keisman, a commentator, says that resurrection, justification, creation are all affirmations of the same reality. They bear witness to the peculiar power of God to evoke new life by his graciousness. Not out of life potential, but out of a situation here, there is nothing on which to base hope. He is saying that the scandal of God's promise is that it's based entirely on him and his good pleasure and nothing that he sees in us. He doesn't offer you joy because of some potential that he sees in you, waiting for you to live up to it. The scandal of his promise is that he brings it to bear in situations where there is nothing to base hope. Look at Sarah. She's 90. God's promise to her is laughable, but he keeps his promises. And this drives us away from ourselves and into the arms of the God who is found always faithful. This miracle, and this is a miraculous birth, this miracle is not a violation of the natural order, but it is a concrete assertion that God is faithful to his promises. And the scandal of his promise leads to an interruption of joy. Laughter is an interruption. Think about how it comes out of us. It's, it's like an eruption of gladness. And the word for laughter is in this passage five times. In these seven verses, we see this word five times. First, the name of Isaac. The name Isaac means he laughs. And then in verse six, Sarah proclaims that God has made laughter over me. By his powerful word, God has broken the grip of death the grip of hopelessness, and the grip of barrenness. This joyous laughter is the end of sorrow and the end of weeping. In John 16, as Jesus is with his disciples the night before he goes to the cross, he, he tells them that babies, new life, new birth, babies are the sign and the expression of joy. And laughter, laughter is the biblical way of receiving a newness which can't be explained. And here, we have laughter over a baby, unexpressible, unexplainable newness and joy. And Sarah laughs. Barrenness has now become ludicrous. In John 16, as Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death on the cross, he says to them, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. William Temple, who is a 20th century bishop in the Church of England, writes this. He says, it's not only that joy will take the place of sorrow, but that sorrow itself becomes the joy. The cross is not for Christians a stumbling block which the resurrection has removed. It is not a defeat of which the effect has been canceled by a subsequent victory. It is itself the triumph. What was the devil's worst has become God's best. The devil's worst, the murder of the Son of God, the death of the promised Son, the curse of the cross on the blessed one of God has become God's best. 
in Christ on the cross, God gives us the forgiveness of sins. He has abolished the dividing wall of hostility between God and man. So how do we apply this? It's only as you engage with the real sorrows of your life that you will unlock the potential for true joy. And as I've talked with other pastors, we're seeing how hard it is right now for us, for us, for y'all, for people to really engage with their sadness. Some of us are falling into self-reliance and overworking. A lot of people are working crazy hours relying on themselves. Some of us are bringing, are binging on social media, binging on news and Netflix, not turning to God. In this break from your past busyness, some of you are using more time, this, this more time that you have, you're not using it to turn to God, but rather diving deep and deeper into distraction. We're not taking our pain to Jesus and we don't know how to lament. Some of us even think that lamenting is wrong. And so we kick the dog and we take out our pain on others. And if not on others, then it comes out in self-destructive behavior. The stats on alcohol purchasing and porn use right now are way up. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers you a way into and through your pain and sadness. You don't have to avoid it. You don't have to stuff it down. You don't have to medicate it or take it out on others. But the God of the universe invites you to join him in his grief over the brokenness of the world. He invites you to join the spirit in its groanings. He invites you to join Jesus in his tears. And it's only as you enter your sorrows, take them through the true story of Jesus's death and resurrection, that he will transform them into joy. Friends, we must learn to lament and to take it to the cross, to submit our sadness to Jesus and to wait for Jesus to bring resurrection. Look at Sarah. Sarah had to wait 30 years watching all of her friends become grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers. And then the best thing that would ever happen to her happened. Isaac, the promised child, the one through whom God would save the world was born. And the difference between you and Sarah, despite the obvious differences, you're not a 90-year-old Hebrew-speaking nomadic princess. The difference between you and Sarah is that the best thing that will ever happen to you has already happened to you in Jesus Christ. He is the promised child who Isaac pointed to. Isaac was born so that Jesus would be born. Jesus is a direct descendant of this baby. And he was born to die for you, to take your sadness and sin into himself on the cross so that in his resurrection, he might give you the inexpressible joy of new life. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is both the saddest and the most joyous event in human history. His death and resurrection are the true story of the world. And it's only as we submit, submit our real sadness to his that he will give us the joy that we long for. Just in closing here, um, there's a, a, a psychologist who was a leading child therapist at the University of Chicago who was a Holocaust survivor named Bruno Bettelheim. And he wrote a book called The Uses of Enchantment. And in this book, he discovered that what the children in the death camps who'd been read the true brothers' grim fairy tales, that these children had been taught that someday you may be thrown into an oven. Someday a wolf may come to the door, but guess what? There is an unstoppable force in the universe that is there to support you. 
if you keep going, you will discover the faith, the courage to go on. And friends, this is why neutered Little Red Riding Hood is so dangerous, because it isn't real. We need to tell ourselves and to tell one another true stories. And that's what we have in the Bible. The birth of Isaac points us to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is where we see the true reality of this world. That the world is in bondage to sin, is filled with sorrow and anguish, but that in Jesus Christ, there is new creation. Death will not win. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And one day, we shall fully share in his resurrection. And the joy that we experience now is just a foretaste of the day when Jesus will return. And we will enter into a new joy, an eternal joy, erupting with laughter, for he is faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of all joy. And that you in your death give us a place to bring our sadness. Lord, I pray for my friends here. The reality of grief in their lives and the reality of the sadness that's around us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross for us and are raised for us, that you alone have the power to do something with our sadness, to transform it into joy. Would you do this, we ask, that you would receive glory. In Christ's name, amen.